If you are neutral in situations of injustice, you have chosen the side of the oppressor. That is a quote by Desmond Tutu. Welcome to Trina Talk. This is the podcast where guests share their stories of pursuing their passions, living a fulfilled life, and empowering others. Each week, I talk with inspiring leaders, business owners, and people with amazing stories from around the world in unscripted conversations as they share their successes and failures. This podcast is all about empowering you to keep striving in your personal and professional life. I am your host, Trina L. Martin. Welcome to episode 128. Before I get started with this week's episode, I'm excited to share with you that I've been selected as one of the international speakers for Sean Fair's Leadership Experience Tour 2021. It's happening April 10th in Troy, Michigan. I will be there on location on the stage And the topic of my speech is From a Mess to Amazing. I will be inspiring and empowering you to be resilient regardless of what may have happened in your life. Now, although I'm going to be present there on stage, I invite you to purchase your virtual ticket at bit.ly forward slash capital L-E-T 2021. The topic of this week's episode is Growing up black and white. My guest this week is Kevin Hoffman. Kevin is an author, speaker, and racial healer. As an accomplished writer and public speaker, Kevin has appeared across the United States sharing his experience and guiding parents, students, and professionals through today's multicultural landscape. Kevin's layered racial resume has led him to write Growing Up Black and White a compelling memoir revealing his difficulties and joys growing up in a diverse family, particularly during a time and in a location where acceptance was tentative and emotions regarding race ran high and hot. Hi, Kevin. Welcome to Trina Talk. Hi, thanks for having me on. Thank you for being with me. I have been uh, very excited to speak with you because you are doing something that I think right now um, you and I both know we need a lot in this country as, of America as well as the world, but um, racial healing. Um, you're an author, you're a speaker. Um, what I'm very concerned as far as how what you have to say is I have two biracial children. So um, <laughs> so there's a, some, you know, some similarities there, but before we start diving into all the questions, I'd like to start off by asking who you are and what made you the Kevin that you are today? I think what made me, and I think what makes all of us who we are today, which is a big, it's the root of race and racism. It's just our experiences. So I'm, you know, the result of, you know, being the result of an affair between a white woman and a black man in the late 60s in Detroit uh, who were happily married just to two different people. And, you know, they, my mother chose to, you know, give me life. And the only stipulation with her husband was that I would be put up for adoption right away. And so 
that's what happened. I was adopted at three months old by a white minister, his wife, and their three biological children. And uh, we lived in a suburb of Detroit for a while and then moved into Detroit, where from age three to 18, I lived around kids that looked like me. And as a result of being born in Detroit, two weeks after the riots in 1967, the riots, because the blacks and whites couldn't get along, um, I'm the result of all that, you know, coming, you know, this biracial child in the mix of all, you know, that controversy back in the late sixties. And so that's created this passion in me to try and, you know, help and reconcile the differences between the races that I'm made up of. Wow. So when did you get to this point where you decided to do this, where you decided to say, you know what, there's issues and, and I'm pretty sure, you know, you have had issues all your life. Um, But what made you decide to take it to that next level instead of just saying, this is how I'm being treated. um, Whatever, this is my lot in life. What made you say, okay, I'm going to take my life and my experiences and I'm going to use it to a greater good. I think it was, Man, probably 10, 12 years ago, I just thought, wow, this is such an unusual story. Like, and this was before This Is Us, you know, the series. And I thought this is such an unusual story. You know, this biracial kid growing up with growing up in the house with, you know, a bunch of white folks. And so that was the initial push was I thought it was just an unusual story. The next push was uh, that I just wanted to be heard as a person of color and an adoptee. I wanted people to understand the world as I saw it. And so one of the biggest things I did when I wrote the book was I wanted to talk about race in a way that those that weren't comfortable talking about race could at least digest it. And so the book, you know, for those who have read it, I mean, it's just all these stories of me, this biracial kid trying to find who I am in this very colorful world, but it's just filled with all these stories. Stories that I think no matter what color you are, you can relate with growing up and all the stupid things you did as kids. And then in between those stories, my plan was to say, okay, this is the story. Now, this was my interpretation of the story now as a person of color who's grown up in this country that is so defined by color. Um, And so that's that was really the push that I wanted to talk about this thing about race. And quite honestly, the weight and gravity of this mission that I have and this passion that I have really never occurred to me until probably the last year or two. when I was, I always joke and say, you know, when I go train or I, you know, share about the book, it's great therapy for me mm-hmm. because I have people ask me questions and I got to really think about. It. And so, yeah, this last year when we were all huddled inside because of the pandemic, yeah, one of the things I really thought about was why are you why are you so driven to do this? And it was to reconcile the races that I'm made up of. Wow. That's a that's a large feat. <laughs> yeah, it it is, but then again, like we talked about, we're a result, you know, of our experiences. My my biological mother, uh, when she found out she was pregnant, went to her sister and asked her for money for an abortion. And her sister gave it to her. And so my mother left her sister's mobile home with every intention 
to travel the hour away to Flint, Michigan to have me aborted. And I never met my mother, but and so I don't know why she changed her mind, but somewhere on that road from Detroit to Flint, she chose to give me life. And I don't take that seriously, or I, I take that very seriously. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, there was a reason why I wasn't aborted. So let's do something with it. Wow. You know, and that's funny you say you didn't meet your birth mom. And I was going to ask you that because it seems like you have that backstory. So it seems like you have met. Have you met your biological father? I have not met my biological father. I met my sis, my, so my mother's daughter. So my mother had four kids and me. So I had three brothers and a sister. Um, I met a sis, my sister, a brother, two brothers didn't want to meet. Um, and I never, I never, my mother died by the time I came in contact with the family. And interestingly enough, my biological father, who I, you know, didn't get to meet either. He died within six weeks of my mother or two. Wow. Yeah. So it was just crazy that, and I don't think they had much contact after I was born. And, and I've talked to a biological brother of mine, my, our father's son. Mm-hmm. And he said, yeah, we had no idea you were even around. So really? I don't think my father even knew. And back in the late sixties, the mothers didn't have to tell the father. Right. Wow, because I I was going to ask if your biological parents, did they have a relationship or have feelings for each other? Or was it just, you know, it just happened type of thing? Yeah. And as an adoptee, you fill in all the empty. Yeah. Yeah. Right. In my head, I'm like, oh, yeah, they my my biological mother's husband was not the kindest man. Mm. So, in, and so to answer your earlier question, I had met my mother's sister, okay. Nancy, and she was the one that told me the abortion story and that whole thing. Um, and so, yeah, it was just, it's just an interesting story. Um, yeah, and unfortunately did not get to meet the biological mother and father, but met other people in the biological family. So how was that uh, meeting your aunt? from your biological mother and in siblings. How was that? How were you received? How are you perceived? Tell us about that. Yeah. And that, that was, it was a good thing and a not so good thing. Like it was great to connect with the family, but because I'm, because, you know, I'm black and my mother's family is all white. Yeah. I really had concerns with how would they accept me? Um, and so that really, every time I would go see them, I, that would really you know, kind of mess with me. Um, and so we kept in contact for a while. Uh, and then a couple of years after I got in touch with my sister, she'd invited me and my wife and two kids to go come up and see her. And I thought I was just, I, it was, this was like the Friday after thank, or Thanksgiving one year. And I thought we were just going to go up to her apartment, which is 45 minutes away, and have dinner with her and her daughter. And I walk into this very small apartment, and there's got to be at least 20 people. And they're all sitting in this, uh, the living room. (laughs) And I remember it clearly. And I'm thinking, okay, how are these white people going to perceive me? And then I walk into the living room, and they're all sitting there watching the rodeo. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> and I just remember thinking, man, I'm not feeling too comfortable right now. <laughs> and it was, oh. it was, quite honestly, it was like the longest three hours of my life. <laughs> I just wanted to go. And no one said anything, but I was just really uncomfortable. Oh. And I understand, I think my sister was so excited to kind of show me off to everybody. But I wish she would have prepared me for what I was about to walk into. Yeah. And it was little things like that because of that, that I just chose to kind of break from the family. Yeah. Because it became not as healthy for right. me. And and really, I had gotten the ans- the questions answered that I wanted. Right. Um, and I didn't wow. really need much else. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah, you get your answers and, you you know, life is life. You go on about your way. Exactly. And um, so you were adopted by a white family. So how was that? So you're this black kid, biracial, however you want to identify. Now you're in a family of white people. Yeah. How how did that play on you as a male, a black male growing up? How how were you? So when I was we lived in a suburb of Detroit initially. Dearborn, Michigan, which is mm-hmm. a very white suburb, was happy to be white, and ha- actually had systems in place to make sure it stayed white. Um, it was considered a closed community, which meant people of color were not a welcome there. Mm-hmm. So when people of color were looking for houses, they weren't showing them houses in Dearborn. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, we, li- we lived in Dearborn the first three years of my life. When I was about a year old, we woke up to a cross burning on our front yard, in our front yard. Um, my father was an associate pastor at a, a Lutheran church in Dearborn, St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Dearborn. And they tried to fire him because he brought this child of color into the church. After three years of going through cross burnings and the women at the church referring to me as the snotty nosed black kid in the nursery, or them always constantly coming up to my mother, and this was a running thing throughout our whole life, is the white women would come up to my mother and ask her, well, who do you think he's going to date? And I'm like less than, I'm younger than three years old at this point. Yeah, I don't think she was thinking about that. Yeah, exactly. But what they were concerned with was, Lord, please don't let this child grow up to date my daughter. Right. And so my, after dealing with that, after people refusing to cut my mom's hair because she had this little black kid with her, my parents said, this is not the community for us. It's going to change us before we change it. And the, the most important thing they did for me and for our family, I think, was we moved to Detroit. My father took a church and pastored a church that was 50% white, 50% black in the neighborhood that we lived in was a black neighborhood. So from age three to 18, I was always around kids that looked like me and that was life-changing for me. Mm -hmm. So I didn't grow up wishing I was white. Mm -hmm. I was very proud to be a person of color and actually felt really bad for my brothers and sister because they weren't black. Right. And I was just so fortunate to go in that first neighborhood I went into. uh, My best friend was this black kid across the street and he was significantly older than me. He's five or six years older than me, but he was the leader of that neighborhood. Mm -hmm. So when we first moved in, I remember uh, Derek Herbert putting his arm around me and saying, you know, he's cool. Don't touch him. Leave him alone. And they didn't. I I was protected by him. 
and man, he became like a superhero to me. I wanted to be like him when I grew up. I wanted to be like the other black kids in the neighborhood. And that was very, very healthy for me. Because yeah. I had know, found my tribe and I knew it. I mean, right. you, you, you found your belonging. It's, it's, and I was going to ask, did your parents have other children? So they had other biological children or did they adopt yes. other children? No. So I'm the only adopted child in our family. And okay. I have uh, three siblings, two brothers and a sister who are all older than me. So what made them adopt? Do you know? Did they ever tell you? Yeah. So and it's funny because we never talked about this stuff growing up. Mm-hmm. It was just part of it had to do with growing up in the 70s and families just didn't talk about deep stuff like that. Um, and so I remember I had gotten engaged and my fiance knew the whole my background and my story. And she asked me, well, why did they adopt you? And I was like, I don't know. I've never asked. So the first time she met my parents, she asked. And that's what I found out that their family plan was always have four kids. They had three. Uh, my closest sibling is 11 months older than me. Okay. My mother had him. They wanted to have a fourth child. And physically, his birth was very hard on my mother. Okay. And so they chose to adopt the fourth child. And so. And they, they knew what they were getting. It wasn't, you know, you know, they knew they had a black child. It wasn't a surprise to them. No. And, and actually, because my mother was physically capable of having other children, the rule was they only qualified for hard to place or special needs children. And so they were presented with like uh, two, two young uh, children that were one had bone cancer and one had a heart defect who were going to die. I mean, back then, right. technology isn't what it was today. Um, so you were basically taking care of this child until they died. And my mother and father thought that emotionally our family couldn't handle that. And financially we couldn't handle that. Right. So they passed on those two kids. And then Lutheran Social Services approached my parents and said, would you, would you consider adopting another, what we call special needs or hard to place child? And, and that's, yeah. That was you. Children of color were and are right. in some areas today still considered hard to place. Yeah. And so that's what, and, and, and they said yes to a question that they had no idea, like if they were really prepared and they found out those first three years in Dearborn that, yeah, Yeah. it wasn't what they thought it was going to be. It was different. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's amazing. Um, And God bless your parents for, you know, adopting you, Mm -hmm. but it, you know, it's ironic. I saw this and you maybe you've seen it, too. I think it was a Netflix documentary. Some young lady decided to document her life, but she was born to a white mother. Um, her mother had an affair with a black man, but she was married and all her life. You know, of course, she looked different and the, the whole family. And they were like, you know, why? Why is she so tanned? And. It it was always tacked, you know, the parents came up with the story that the father was Italian and there was somebody, you know, down the line that was dark. And and then finally, um, I don't know how it came out, but I think finally the mother like had to tell her that, yeah, I cheated on your dad and you're really not his child. But anyway, it eventually broke that marriage up. 
But this young lady, she decided to chronicle her life because she was like, yeah, I thought I was this white kid, but now I'm really black. So she was just talking about it. And I think she may be in her 20s, maybe early 30s now. Um, she ended up marrying a black man at the end of her her um, story. But it was very interesting. Um, and I thought I was like, hmm, I was like, yeah, I wonder how that is. And as I was saying to you, I have two biracial children. And it's interesting because, of course, I'm black. Their dad is white. And they look like me. They're just a fairer shade of me, right? And we all know black people come in all shades and exactly. whatever. Um, but it's funny because, you know, I'm no longer married, but my ex told me at one time when the kids were small, he had them, they were somewhere and some woman just walked up to him and said, you know, she was just looking and was saying, um, um, uh, and said he knew where she was. He was like, their mother's black. And she was like, oh, oh, okay. And I was like, really? Does somebody actually oh, come okay. up to you and do that. He was like, yeah. And, you know, of course I never get that because you see black people, black people range in all colors. So no one right. would ever come up to me. They'll look at them and say, oh yeah, they're her kids. They look like her, but they're never going to come up to me and say, oh, are they, you know? Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's very, um, I guess I'm, I'm very always astounded by how um, boisterous people are, how they have the audacity to just mm. come up to someone just out of the clear blue and ask, you know, like, you know, you're this white man with these two black kids. What's the deal? Basically, that's what she was saying, you know? Um, So it's just really, you know, interesting. So when I saw your story and saw your book and I was like, Oh God, I was like, yeah, I I need to talk to him. Cause this is, this is like my life too. And that's interesting. And I always ask my kids and it's funny because, you know, they live with me, but we live in white suburbia, right? Mm-hmm. And white suburbia, they go to, you know, the schools and, you know, I'm talking to my daughter who's, you know, 15, almost 16. And, she, you know, she's like, you know, telling me about all, you know, all the white kids at school and this, 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 and this, and this. And then I'm like, oh, okay. So that's how you feel, you know? And, yeah. you know, and she's like, yeah. So, you know, it's just like, you know, and it, it was something that I guess, when we were married, me and my ex, we kind of always consciously knew that it would be one side or the other, right? That they would have some kind of um, issues depending on yeah. where we were right. and how we would deal with that. Um, of course, today is 2021. And it's not like when you and I grew up in the 60s and 70s where it's that big issue. But I think they have. I think they know who they are and I think they identify as black. They don't have any issues, but then they know they go to their fathers or they visit, you know, their father's family and they're white. Whereas, you know, me and my family is black. So I don't think there's any um, doubt there, but it's always very interesting and curious to me because I'm always wondering, you know, do they, do they fit in? Do they feel that they fit in what's going through their mind? Because I didn't have that growing up. Right. Uh, You know, there was no other side of me. It was just what you see is what you get. So just talking to you and hearing this um, is, is very interesting because your family, you know, actually went to a place where you were comfortable, even though your siblings may have had to do some adjusting, but it turned out well for you, which probably ended up being well for everyone because, you know, black people are just an accepting race. You know, I just have to say it. Um, So 
you know, we're not going to run people out of town and all of that is just kind of like, oh, yeah, hey, you know, they're the family and pretty soon you're cool and everybody's good with it. But I love that you're talking about this at this this time. And my question, I guess, that's really um, that I really would like to ask you is with the climate of 2020, the pandemic and everything that we saw going on. How did you feel? How did you how did you feel? And as far as um, conversations that were being had by other people, um, your stance, how did you how did you approach the subject? And not as far as how did you feel, but how did you approach or educate other people? Yes. So that so. One other thing that I do is I go to and work with organizations and schools, K through 12 and universities in what most people call diversity and inclusion. And so, yeah, I think 2020 will go down in history as a year that changed things, I think, for this country racially. Um, it was it was a horrible, perfect storm where last spring we're all at home, locked mm-hmm. away. And we all get to see this eight minute and 46 second video of George Floyd. And to this day, I haven't watched the whole thing. But yeah, some people that would not have watched that if the world was normal, they wouldn't have watched it. They wouldn't have seen it. But I think what happened was we all were hunkered inside and more people than usual watched that video. And it was at that point that a lot of people who said we didn't have we didn't have a problem. You couldn't ignore the fact that this guy was standing on this other guy's neck and everyone was standing around like nothing was happening. And that guy is crying out to his dead mother because he's seeing he's about to die. I think that changed the world in ways that we won't know. And I think that's going to be a good thing. The frustrating thing is it took all that to get there when throughout my whole life, the black community has said, they're doing this to us. They're doing this to us, you know, and it's a simple plea. Stop killing us. Yeah. Stop beating us. And, 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 I, and again, we talked about experiences earlier. And that's one of the biggest things I try to drive home when I go out and do training is I experience the world in one way. And so do you, mm-hmm. and it's not the same. So when you assume that it is the same. And so when I share my experience in your head, you say that could not have possibly happened because nothing like that has ever happened to me. Right. And that's very dismissive for a person of color, especially if it's something that has caused you pain. And when you're sharing that with someone and they dismiss it by saying, well, that couldn't possibly have happened. You got it wrong. That's very painful. Um, and so I think the world last year changed in a way And I'm praying it's going to be a lasting change. And I think it is, will be, because I never saw so many people in charge come out and denounce what a police officer did. (laughs) There were police chiefs, there were mayors, there were governors, and that never happens. Usually they hold the blue line and no one says anything about it. And that one incident, it changed things. I mean, companies were changing the way they were advertising. Athletes were sitting out of games, um, and and it's funny when you compare that to the late '60s and the civil rights movement. 
the biggest push or the biggest thing that caused people to get on board that weren't was TV. People would turn on the TV each night and see people that look like you and I being torn apart by German shepherds. Yep. And you couldn't deny that that was just cruel and inhumane. Yeah. And that got a lot of people on the bus with us to create change. Yes. The cell phone is our TV from the 60s. Yes. Yes. I mean, it's so, yeah, it's amazing 2020 what happened and, you know, just watching that video was something that I can never unsee. And it was something, and and I ended up writing uh, a piece that got published by Thrive Global, but I ended up just sitting my kids down because I'm thinking, oh my God, for the first time in their life, I'm going to have to tell them that this is their reality, right? Um, And, you know, it's something that I've always known and I've always experienced, but who would have thought in 2020 that this would be it, you know, and I had to tell them that, you know what? Yeah, you're black. Regardless whether, you know, dad is white, I'm black, you're black. And this is what's happening to us. And it, it brought tears to my eyes because I didn't think that, yeah, that I would be sitting down telling my kids. I mean, I, I guess consciously I knew I would have to tell them these things, but I didn't know that it was going to come on the heels of what we saw. And like you said, because of the pandemic, because we had, were all forced to be still, yes. and sit <laughs> yeah. down, yeah. Yeah. it it brought things to light that, like you said, that other people would just totally dismiss and say, oh, you're crazy. No, that's not happening. No, 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 no. Yes, it is happening. And it's still happening. And yeah. like you said, now it's people are quicker to denounce and, and break ways and try to bring about change, but it's just, it's very interesting. So in your speaking and your training, um, like you talked about the diversity, equity, and inclusion, how, is there anything different that you're doing? Are you approaching things differently? Are people coming to you um, because of this now saying, okay, you know, we see this as real and we need your help. Yeah. Quite honestly, the Trump was great for business. <laughs> I mean, he stirred up so much and we've never had someone in that high of an office be willing to, you know, whether you, whether how you vote, we've never had anyone in office that mean. Right. Who's given other people license to be horrible people. Yes. And, and you, and we, I've seen that effect. I mean, I, yeah. So terms I thought kids didn't even use anymore. Oh, they're using today. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, the biggest message when I go into schools, especially is to the administration is we've got to find a way. And this is our biggest challenge. We've got to find a way where the kids with the black lives matter t-shirts and the kids with the make America great again, hats can coexist. They don't have to like each other. They don't have to believe what each other believes, but they've got to respect each position. And so one of the big speeches I give is called Give Me Three Feet. And it just talks about, we've got to give each other three feet. So you may have voted for Trump. You know, I voted for Biden. You can contain that in your own three feet and it's not going to affect mine. Where we get into trouble and adults do horrible at this is we try to get into somebody else's three feet and convince them why they should come over to our three feet. Mm -hmm. And if you're that far off, 
good luck. And especially if you're not in relationship with that person. Um, and that's why Facebook fails miserably is because you're having arguments with people that you're not in relationship with. You'll never see. Right. And you're just, yeah, you're, <laughs> you're just, you're wasting. It's just a huge waste of time. So yeah, a it's, it's such a mess, you know, and, and I yeah. call it, you know, how, you know, when people get drunk and they say everything, they say, oh, they got liquid courage. I call Facebook, you know, the keyboard courage because you got the yeah, people exactly. who, um, yeah. you know, like I had somebody to attack me on LinkedIn and the guy, you know, he made some snide remark, you know, and, and I was like, hmm, respond back. But then he wouldn't change his profile. He changed his name. He took all his pictures down. And I was like, oh, you're you're really you're really so bad. You know, you're yeah. you want to, you know, do this war with me. But you can't even do it under your true identity. You know, so I just blocked the person. I was like, you're an idiot. You know, it's like people like that. It's like, first of all, to breed hate and negativity. But then you want to do it, but you want to do it under a guise of someone else. It's like, if you're going to be a hater, be be big enough and bold enough to do it as you. Exactly. Right. You know, but they're not. And and that's the thing. And it's like, oh, you know, you, you're so bad until someone gets you face to face and then you can't do it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's just it's really, really amazing to me. Um, the, yeah. And like you said, the whole. Yeah. I don't even want to talk about that whole presidency thing, because, I, you know, I said, yeah. Having. That office go the way it did brought other people out to say, well, Hey, it's okay because they're saying it, they're doing it. So here I am. And for all intents and purposes, they were told it was okay. So that's what you have. And so I'm hoping that, you know, new year, new, whatever brings different. and, And I'm just so glad that you are using your life and your experiences to bring about that change and being the face of that change, because I don't think people really understand. And we do people of color do, but I don't think people outside of that, I don't think they really comprehend just like we were saying until the pandemic hit and everybody was forced to see it on TV. Then everybody was like, Oh, so yeah, this is real. Um, So I think you you had asked me earlier. So how do I try and get that message across? And it's, what I try and do is just my biggest goal whenever I go into a school or an organization is I have to show them who I am and that I can be vulnerable. So I tell the whole abortion story. I tell where I came from because I've got to get into in with them quickly because we've got a whole lunch bunch to do, but then you also have to gain their trust um, because a lot of these, a lot of the schools that I go into predominantly white and there's a, certain population that think I'm going to come in and call them a racist and tell them who to vote for or why they're wrong. Right. So I have to gain their trust early and then say, it's okay for you to believe how you believe. Mm-hmm. I'm not here to change that, but we've got to make room for each other. Right. And you've got to also acknowledge that your beliefs aren't the only beliefs. Right. Believe, people believe differently. Right. So, and, that, and I'm working with a school now and just started this year and the Biggest thing that happened, and this wasn't at my hand, but someone had sent out a video on white privilege. And that is a sore spot <laughs> for a certain group in our population. And I know 
I can't lead with that because I've <laughs> lost half the half the people on the boat. And, yeah. and uh, yeah, actually, when I do my training, yeah, for the first couple of years when I did my training, I wouldn't even use that word because I knew people would just shut down as soon as I said it. But um, but do they realize that it is real? Some do not. Like from what I heard with this school I'm working with now is that, yeah, one of the teachers was very upset and said there's no such thing as a white privilege. There's no such thing as institutional racism. And he went on and on. Um, and so and I think my thought is. See, you're denying somebody else's experience to someone else. That is very true and real. Yeah. And so does it really make a difference whether it's true or not? Like, does that really like, could you be open to the fact that although you might not think it affects you, it may affect other people. Right. But I think a lot of the people that kind of bristle at that don't really understand what it is. Right. So everybody has privileges. Men have privileges. Women don't have. So I'm privileged because I can feel more comfortable walking down the street than a smaller woman could. So there's privilege in that. There's nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. But some people and yeah, I was talking to another person and I said, when you come to someone who's never been told no, and you have to be the first one to tell them no, you get this huge pushback. You see it with people who are told, could you just wear a mask so this person next to you doesn't die? Yeah. That person is not used to someone telling them yes. no. Yep. And so you get this very, and you've seen, we've all seen it on yep. these, these cell phone videos. You get these responses to a simple request that are so way up here. Yes. You got to wonder, okay, you're there's either, there's a mental deficiency there <laughs> or you're just freaking out because for the first time, yeah. Someone's told you no or denied you a right. Right. And it, and it's not even a denial of a right. It's okay. We're in a changed society exactly. and this is what you do. And yeah. And some people just, yeah, they refuse to comply because yeah. Who are you to tell me what to do? It yeah. is just, yeah, it's amazing. So and that's another byproduct of the last administration that gave us free reign to say, I should come first above everything. Yes. Yep. Yeah. You know, oh, I have a doctor's excuse why I can't wear a mask. Really? And what would that be? Yeah. You know, it's, the it's, business has every right to deny you entry. And, and exactly. And that's what I was thinking. I was, you know, it's funny. I, I saw this video of the Karen, some woman, you know, going into the store and they, the woman stopped her. And it was a white woman in the store who worked there and she was stopping another white woman. And she said, I can't let you in if you don't have on a mask. She goes, it's my right to come here. She said, no, it's our right to deny you to come in here. And she got so just pissy with the woman. Oh, I'm going to sue you. And this is not, and the lady was like, fine, do whatever. She said, look, we're trying to keep our employees safe as well as other customers. So you have to wear a mask. And the woman was like trying to like bogart her way in the store. And the lady was like, no. And I'm thinking, is it that hard? Is it really that hard? But because you've been told that, okay, you have a right to do this and you can just push people out the way. Supersede everybody else. Right. You know, it's like, wear the mask. You don't have a doctor's note. You can't sue anybody. I'm like, okay, remember in the time where you used to go to a restaurant and they would say, you know, we have the right to refuse service. If you don't have on shoots, uh, certain shoes, you can't come in. Everybody was okay with that. But now, it's a freaking pandemic. 
and you're required to wear a mask, a piece of cloth, and you get people who are like, no, I'm going to see you. It's my right. Oh, I have a doctor's note. What doctor's note do you, doctors wear masks. So what doctor's right. note do you right. have? Right. 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 <laughs> you know, yeah. so it's, it's like yeah. the most idiotic thing and they're not thinking. And, and like you said, it's because for the first time in their lives, someone is telling them to do something that they don't want to do. And it is a must. And it's just amazing to me. Just, and I'm just like, this is so crazy. This is so crazy. Um, but anyway, let me get off of that tangent. <laughs> I'm, on, I'm on a whole different tangent. Uh, so in your book, Growing Up Black and White. Mm-hmm. So is that just basically your memoir? Are you, uh, tell us about the book. Tell us about it. So yeah, the book, you know, is is our story of growing up as this very unusual, colorful family. Uh, and I would, and it's not just for white families that have adopted children of color. Again, one of my biggest pushes behind writing the book was I wanted to share what it was like, how I saw this country through the eyes of a person of color. Um, and, and I think that there's a bigger story for a bigger audience, which is just that, that, this is my experience. This thing happened. Now I look back on it and I look at it through the lens of a person of color that's grown up and knows more. And I share what I think was going on at that time. Um, and yeah, I've been told that's a powerful way to teach people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I got that from my adoptive father. He was a minister. And so I got the gift of storytelling from him. Yes. Um, and I think that's what brings people together is if you can tell stories in a way that people can relate and understand, I think we can get, get us all closer where we can come to an understanding. Yes. Yes. <clears throat> so you're working, so you work primarily with the school districts and you say you go into some corporations mm-hmm. and do work there. So are you called in or do you go to these places? Tell me how that works. Both, but it's to the point now where, you know, an incident happens and I get a call. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And so that's not the best way to go in because now (laughs) you're trying to put out fires. Um, But, but it's a good time to go in too, because everybody's anxious to kind of talk about it. and Mm -hmm. Most are want to get it resolved some way. So that's a good way to go in. But yeah, I'm usually called in because there's, and, and it's funny, it's always called, when you go in, they don't want to tell you, in that, you get this, it's always, we do the same dance in a lot of different <laughs> places, which is, well, this incident happened back in January, right. we need to address it. And they don't want to tell me the full incident. Right. <laughs> and then it's always referred to as the incident. Yeah, the point. incident. <laughs> oh my goodness. So, you know what, it is, and this is, kind of off topic, but not. We talked about how 2020 changed everything and how companies are changing. Marketing is changing. Um, and you have seen just like I have. So now you get the interracial commercials, you get the um, the gay commercials, you get things like that. So this was all a result of 2020 because I don't recall before 2020 seeing things like that, but now it's like, Companies are making a conscious effort to try to say, okay, we're going to be inclusive. Right. Yeah. 
in your experience, do you think this is going to last or do you think this was just a hot button for the men? It's going to last because there's a financial gain from mm-hmm. it. Um, this country keeps tanning. It keeps yeah. getting darker and darker. Yeah. So you can stick with marketing to one group, but this other group keeps getting larger and larger and taking up more of the, the share. So, yeah, I think, yeah, this, and we never go back once it starts, yeah. you know, and I, I say that a lot when I go into communities, it's your community starting to tan. It's bringing mm-hmm. in more and more people of color. It doesn't ever reverse. Right. <laughs> what happens is the white people then go, okay, we'll move further out. <laughs> But then that community that they just left gets darker and darker. Right. So, yeah. So, yeah, those things don't change. And companies see that now. And you're almost shocked. I am shocked to this day that you get advertisements that go through so many steps and make it to the point where we see it. And you're like, how did you miss that? Like, I think Gucci did one last year. It was a turtleneck. And when you flipped it up, it had these big red lips. I just oh, oh it was just it looked so minstrel minstrel esque, <sighs> and I just wonder, you have such a lack of people in color in, in right. decision making positions, because if you had them there, that never would have gotten to where I saw it. Right, right, and it, it does, and it makes you wonder, especially for someone like Gucci on that kind of level. You're like, where have you been? Yeah, and, it, and if nothing else, you need to look at who's buying your product, right? Who's right. Right. consuming it. I can, yeah. but I can give you, there's probably a lot of people of color who are doing that. So, yeah. you know, you need to make the exactly. switch. Right. So why would you want to upset that group? So because of there's this financial gain for so many people, I, yeah, I, we won't go back. I think okay. you'll start seeing that more and more. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, you know, and it's very interesting and I'm like even seeing it now, like going to websites where they have, you know, support black businesses, black lives matter, um, mm-hmm. things that. I was like, wow, all of a sudden this popped up, you know, now we support black businesses. And um, Mm -hmm. whereas before you wouldn't even have them saying that. Yeah. Uh, And but now companies are saying, you know, no, we want to be on the right side of this movement. So this is what we're doing. So that's you know, that's that's a good thing, even though it took. A traumatic, a series of traumatic things to happen. Um, That's a good, good thing going on. but. I think really with you and you sharing and being so authentic in your personal life and sharing your story and using it to help the greater good, the world, the children, you know, especially students in school that have to go out into that real world and they need to know something other than what's been told to them in their house. Right. Because You know, we know they're being fed one thing in the house and like just like not ever being told, no, you get out in the real world. It's not what's going on in your house. You know, you got those four walls. You go out in the world. There's a broad spectrum of things going on. So, yeah. So I think, you know, it's really. I just really I was really just so invigorated to just hear your story, to know that this was what you were doing, because you just don't see enough of it. You know, you really don't. And it's only, you know, I can only stand on my soapbox so much. I can only write so many articles. Um, but it, it takes all of us, the collective thing. Right. And, and maybe there's going to be something I say that somebody I listen to. Maybe there's going to be something you say that someone listens to. And then maybe, you know, we can get to a place where 
you know, our kids won't have to worry about seeing somebody, you know, laying on the ground with their neck being, you know, crushed, yeah. begging for their life. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's just, it's amazing. Um, I'm going to go into my questions. Are you ready? Yep. I'm ready. Okay. I, I usually don't tell people to study for them. So um, we're going to see. All right. Who or what motivates you? Uh, my wife, she's a really hard worker and yeah, it motivates me to <laughs> get on my hustle. Hey, that's a, that's a good partner. Um, what demotivates you? Negativity. That's been the hardest thing this last year. It's just been because we, I'm a people person and to be cut off from that, man, that could cause you to spiral. <laughs> I mean, just. Yeah, to the point where you're like, man, I don't want to get out at all. Yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, and just so much has been so much about race. And I mean, last year was just a lot. <laughs> yeah, it is. I don't know how you do it because, yeah, with the diversity and inclusion, because you're, do you ever have to just stop and come up for air <laughs> just to be like, ah, oh, you know, I don't want to talk about this again. Even though I have to be necessary. real careful because part of inclusion means we we accept all ideas. Right. And so, of course, I want everyone to agree with my ideas. Mm -hmm. So if I blast you because you share an idea that's away from mine, I'm not being inclusive right. either. <laughs> so, so that's the hard. That's really hard. And I'm you see that a lot with a lot of the schools is you got this diversity groups that come together because they want things to change. And then if you get one person in there that says something different than what they believe, they want to chase them out. And I'm like, right. no, that's not inclusion. <laughs> You're yeah. doing what you're not asking them not to do. Yeah, that's not too inclusive. Yeah. Yeah. When was a time that something was said or done to hurt you, but it worked for your good? Hmm. Oh, when I first wrote the book, yeah, I, I had asked a fellow adoptee and a fellow transracial adoptee. So he's a person of color who was adopted by a white family. And I was at, he's a leader in the, at that time, he was a leader in the area. So I sent him a copy of the book, all excited. And he just ripped me a new one from the front cover to the back. And uh, yeah, he just said, I was so naive and my way of looking at things wasn't right. Um, but it's your life. Yeah. And so that, that really motivated me too, though, too, because then like two or three years after that, I was like, well, yeah. Like there's some things in the book now I don't believe because I've grown. Mm -hmm. And so I could, I, sometimes I'll go back and read and I'm like, yeah, I don't really believe that now. Mm -hmm. And so I could see where he might, where he said I was naive at some, some parts. And I, and that was a, it was a painful, painful process, but it made me stronger because I had to be open to improving. And so mm -hmm. now I try to do it where I speak to a larger audience. Okay. What is your fear? Man, and this is common for adoptees. It's just uh, the fear of success, which is crazy. But a lot of us, you know, one of the things that we walk away from an adoption or being given up by our birth mother is the feeling of not being worthy. And so you really struggle with that throughout your whole life that, man, I'm not good enough. And so I could tell you so many times when I've been like on the edge of success, 
and then done something to self-destruct. Mm. And it's, yeah, you look back at it and just go, man. And that was just a product of not feeling wanted, you know. Mm. Wow. Is there a time when you wish you had done something that you didn't? Yeah, we we had gone on vacation and we were in line. And my son, it was me, my wife, my two sons, they were teenagers. And my sons were looking at this white guy in front of us who was covered in tattoos. And my one son, I think, motioned to his brother and said, kind of look at the guy. Didn't say anything, but just Mm -hmm. motioned to his brother. And his wife, the guy's wife, saw that. Mm -hmm. And she, and I had, I didn't know what was going on. I was paying attention elsewhere. And so then she just, she started off real calm and she was like, so do you like tattoos? And my son was like, yeah, no, that's just not my thing. And she was like, good, because they're not on you. And then it it just went from zero to 60. And then, and then he gets in on it and he's like, yeah, because this is America. And when he went there, oh. that puts a different flavor on it. And yeah, I wish I... I just kept it calm and we didn't say much, but man, I wish I had, you never want your kids to feel unsafe. In right. Presence. I wish I had yeah, straighten that dude out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. I probably would have, and yeah, yeah. It probably would have been a different outcome. So it's probably yeah. not good. <laughs> probably not good. Um, is there a time that you wish you had not done something? If, if I don't go back and correct it, yes. So if there's something I've done that I regret or something I've done to hurt somebody and you realize that and don't go back and correct it, I think that's, yeah. Okay. What is your definition of success? Just being happy. Okay. How do you recharge? Taking the time to do that. I think oftentimes we get to the point where, yeah, your batteries are below empty uh, before we recharge. So, yeah, I do a lot of crazy stuff like 10 years ago. I would never do. I go get massages at Massage Envy, go a chiropractor. (laughs) (laughs) That's not crazy. Okay. What are you awesome at? My, I would say, Storytelling, I think that really hits home when I go train is that I think that more than anything, if people, people really latch on to, and I think they can then open their ears to hear me. What legacy do you want to leave? Change that. Yeah. I changed something like changed it for the good. Mm-hmm. Give the listeners one motivational takeaway. Give those around you that three feet. Ooh, I, like I mean, that. we don't all have to agree. That's, yeah. Give them the freedom to express themselves and not convince you. Mm, I like that. So tell the listeners how they can connect with you if they have an incident they need to call you in for, or if they want to buy your book, your website, give them the whole nine yards. Yep. So you can find it all through the website, which is, you can get it two ways. It's under the name of the book, which is Growing Up Black in White, 
com or kevinhoffman.com. And Hoffman is spelled H-O-F-M-A-N-N.com. Yes, I had to I had to correct myself earlier. I spelled it with two F's and I was like, nope, that's Everybody not how you spell does. it. <laughs> <laughs> Kevin, thank you for, you know, being so bold and sharing your story and bringing about change because it is a necessary change that we need. And I'm just glad that you're authentic and you shared your story with me and you're sharing your story with the world because that's what, you know, that's what it takes to bring about change. So I really thank you for taking your time out and sharing with me today. Well, thanks for having me, Trina. If you like Trina Talk Podcast, please don't forget to go out to iTunes and rate it five stars and leave a review. Also, who else in your life do you know that needs some motivation and inspiration in their life? Don't forget to share Trina Talk with them. I hope you have a great week. And remember, if you change your mindset, you can change your life. Keep striving because success is a journey, not a destination.